0: Part 18 of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter 51 Rice. One day Emile showed a sulky face because, when he went to Mother Ambrosine for something to eat between meals, she gave him only a slice of bread without butter or honey or anything else on it to make it taste good. But Marie reproved him, saying there were plenty of people in the world that would be glad enough to get a slice of dry bread, and would even consider it a royal feast. "'For it isn't every one can have bread when he wants it,' she continued. "'There are countries where the people have never even seen such a thing. Isn't that so, Uncle Paul?' "'It is only too true,' was his reply. "'You already know from my talks with you that not even in our own favoured land can all the people have white bread on the table.' In many homes, rye and barley serve as very inferior substitutes for wheat, and what is true of this country is even more notably the case throughout large sections of the world as a whole. But what do people eat if they can't get bread of any kind? asked Claire. Sometimes one thing, sometimes another. There are a number of cereals, some of them quite unfamiliar to us, that afford nourishment, though furnishing nothing like our light and fragrant white bread with its crisp crust and sponge-like interior asia has rice africa millet and america maize or indian corn in china and india the people have hardly any food but rice cooked in water with a little salt in fact half the world lives on virtually nothing else rice then takes the place of bread with those people doesn't it asked claire yes it may be said to take the place of our bread when they have anything to go with it but not infrequently the whole meal consists of rice with nothing else at all asked emile incredulously with nothing else of any description his uncle assured him from year's end to year's end then they must be an uncommonly frugal sort of people yes but the warmth of the climate makes this light diet sufficient whereas in our latitude with its colder temperature we should die of consumption if limited to such fare is this rice that takes the place of bread in china and india really the same as that that we at the grocers asked claire we sometimes have that cooked with milk exactly the same it is imported into this country from distant lands what you had last week as soft as sugar and as white as snow may have come from the country of the hindus or perhaps from china the plant producing this article of food has a stalk not unlike that of wheat but instead of the latter's erect ear of grain it bears a graceful tuft of weak and drooping clusters of seeds the leaves are long and narrow like ribbons and are rough to the touch it is an aquatic plant as you have learned in one of our former talks footnote, see field forest and farm and footnote requiring a marshy soil and growing almost submerged in mud and water artificial irrigation is often resorted to in china to bring about the needed conditions and when the harvest season arrives the water is drawn off, and the reaper, sickle in hand, wades into the mud to garner the heavy-laden tops of the rice stalks. But it is a task far different from our cheery harvest. There is no chirping of crickets or songs of lark to enliven the work, no display of cornflowers or poppies to gladden the eye. The reaper plies his sickle with the mud and water reaching sometimes as high as his knees. CHAPTER 52 CHESTNUTS I have explained to you what ingredients flour should contain to make it suitable for bread. It must have both gluten and starch. All flours are rich in starch, but very few possess gluten, so valuable for its highly nutritive qualities and its peculiarity of expanding in delicate membranous tissue when the dough ferments. You have not forgotten that the carbonic acid gas generated by fermentation remains imprisoned in the dough, held in confinement by the gluten, and so causes the formation of innumerable empty sacs, or tiny cells which should be found in all bread worthy of the name if gluten is lacking these eyes are also lacking and the dough makes nothing but a dense cake wholly unworthy of the name of bread well rice and maize both furnish very white flour pleasing to the eye but deficient in one essential it has no gluten for this reason neither rice nor maize will make good bread in spite of the fine appearance of their flour Sometimes maize is used for making what are called corn-pones, which well illustrate the difference between bread made of wheat and bread made of a flour containing no gluten. These cakes have a crisp crust that is very good to look at, but their taste does not correspond with their inviting appearance. They are but coarse, indigestible eating, and after a few mouthfuls you will be glad to desist unless you have a very strong stomach. I class the deceptively inviting corn-pone in the same category with barley-bread, or even below it, but, as I have explained in one of our former talks, footnote, sea-field, forest, and farm, and footnote, mace has its uses as a wholesome food among the farmers who raise it, and whose active outdoor life enables them to digest coarse fare. I see more clearly every day, said Clare, that all those foreign grains, from Asia and from America— are far inferior to our wheat.' "'I'd rather have a slice of bread any time,' declared Emile, "'than all the hasty pudding or porridge or boiled rice you could offer me.' "'Even without any butter on it?' his uncle asked. "'Yes, even without butter.' "'I'm very glad our talks are leading you to value bread at its true worth. If we were obliged to do without it, now that we have become used to this incomparable food, you may well believe it would be the severest of privations.' your mention of hasty pudding reminds me of another well-known porridge called polenta the national dish of corsica and part of italy it is made of chestnut flour let us first say a few words about the tree that produces these delicious nuts which you all like so much either boiled or roasted the chestnut is a tree that lives to a great age and attains enormous dimensions in our mountainous districts i have seen some with trunks four metres in circumference and the trees must have been from three to four centuries old. One of these giants would be enough to shade my whole garden. The largest tree in the world is a chestnut growing on the slopes of Mount Etna in Sicily. It is called the chestnut of a hundred horses, because Jeanne, Queen of Aragon, visiting the volcano one day and overtaken by a storm, sought refuge under it with her escort of a hundred cavaliers. Under its forest of foliage both riders and steeds found ample shelter. To encircle the giant thirty persons with outstretched arms and joined hands would not be enough the circumference of the trunk measures in fact more than fifty meters in its immense size it is more like a fortress or a tower than the trunk of a tree an opening large enough to permit two carriages to pass abreast tunnels its base and gives access to the cavity of the trunk which is arranged as a dwelling for the use of those who come to gather the chestnuts for the old colossus whose age runs into centuries still has young sap, and seldom fails to bear. This prodigious tree must produce a mountain of chestnuts, observed Jules. I imagine one year's harvest would be enough to satisfy all of you for a long time. We should never see the last of them, Emile assented, for there would be sacks and sacks of nuts, more than all the boys and girls around here could eat in a year. Uncle Paul went on with his talk chestnuts are enclosed in a husk bristling with long prickles and opening at maturity in the autumn to let the nuts fall out there are three or four in each husk or burr a kind of chestnut remarkable for its size and quality is known as the large french chestnut it comes to us cheaply from the vicinity of Lyon. you must not confound the edible chestnut with that of another tree called the horse-chestnut a tree that is often planted for ornament in parks and along streets and public promenades horse-chestnuts have all the appearance of the finest edible chestnuts and are also contained in a thorny husk but this resemblance ends with the outside horse-chestnuts being insufferably bitter in taste and absolutely worthless as food white chestnuts or chestnuts stripped of their shells and inner skins and dried for keeping throughout the year are obtained in the following manner on large screens extended from end to end of a long room chestnuts are spread by the hundredweight. And under them there is lighted a fire which produces a great deal of smoke. As soon as they are well dried, the nuts are put in sacks, beaten with sticks, and vigorously shaken. By this heating and shaking, the shells, which have been rendered very friable by the heat and smoke, are broken into little pieces. Chestnuts prepared in this way are used boiled in water, or sometimes they are ground into flour at the mill. This flour mixed with water and cooked over the fire for some time gives the porridge called polenta i've never tasted polenta said claire but i presume it isn't as good as fresh chestnuts roasted on the stove or simply boiled the white dried chestnuts you speak of are not equal to them either but they have the great advantage of keeping all the year round while fresh chestnuts spoil in a few months when chestnuts are being roasted in the hot ashes or on the stove they sometimes burst with a loud noise and scatter the hot meat in all directions it's very funny to hear these little bombs but I'm always afraid for my eyes. Why do chestnuts burst like that, and jump off the stove? Fresh chestnuts, like all undried fruit, contain a little water or moisture. The heat of the fire turns this water into steam, which, being held captive by the tough shell and having no outlet, keeps trying to escape, until at last the overstrained shell breaks, and with a rush the steam bursts out with a loud report through the rents, carrying with it torn fragments of the chestnut. To prevent these explosions, which waste the chestnuts by ripping them open so violently, and are, besides, not without danger to the eyes of those present, it is well to make an opening for the steam so that it can get out as fast as it forms, without gaining force by accumulating. This is done by making an excision in the shell of the chestnut with the point of a knife, or by cutting away a small piece of the shell. Then the steam has an open door by which to escape, and the chestnuts no longer burst while they are in the fire. CHAPTER FIFTY THREE CODFISH Emile came to his uncle with a question. "'Tell me,' he began, "'about the cod that has to be put to soak several days before it is eaten, "'in order to freshen it. not it a fish? "'I don't see any head. "'And then it's all flat, with the bones showing on one side.' "'Yes,' was the reply. "'The cod is a fish, and a very fine one, too, as it swims in the sea.' to preserve it for keeping a long time the fishermen remove its head which is of little value on account of its bones then split the body all down the stomach throw away the entrails and spread out the two fleshy halves forming together a sort of slab broad at one end and running to a point at the other finally the fish thus treated are liberally salted and put to dry in the sun so the cod reaches us all out of shape and almost unrecognizable in its natural state it is a beautiful fish the back and sides are bluish-gray with numerous golden-red spots like those that adorn the trout of our freshwater streams the stomach is silvery white the upper jaw is prominent while from the lower hangs a worm-shaped little barbell and the mouth is armed with innumerable fine pointed teeth that fringe not only the jaws but also the cavity of the mouth and throat as far down as the bottom of the gullet and so as you might guess from its appearance the cod is very greedy always in quest of food endowed with an insatiable appetite and what does it live on asked emile this greedy eater with teeth down to the bottom of its gullet it lives on other fish weaker than itself it is the most formidable enemy of the small fry which it devours in enormous numbers but if it is the terror of the weak it becomes in its turn the prey of a host of equally greedy eaters at certain seasons of the year THE COD GATHER IN COUNTLESS NUMBERS, AND MAKE LONG JOURNEYS TO LAY THEIR EGGS IN FAVORABLE PLACES. THE FAMISHED DENIZENS OF THE DEEP SURROUND THESE SCHOOLS OF FISH. THE HUNGRY INHABITANTS OF THE AIR SOAR OVER THEIR COURSE. THE voracious OCCUPANTS OF THE LAND AWAIT THEM ON THE SHORE. MAN HASTENS TO THE SPOT TO SECURE HIS SHARE OF THE OCEAN manna. HE EQUIPS FLEETS AND SAILS IN QUEST OF THE FISH WITH NAVAL ARMIES, IN WHICH ALL NATIONS ARE REPRESENTED and what he catches he dries salts smokes puts into casks and packs in bales every year millions and millions of cod perish in this way by man's fish-hook by the beak of birds of prey and by the ferocious jaws of rapacious fish with such extermination constantly going on it would seem that the end of the cod must be imminent and yet there is no sign of it the next year these fish resume their journey in as large numbers as ever nevertheless said claire their ranks must in the end become thinner by millions and millions. There is no sign of it, as I said before. A cod lays nine million eggs at a time. Where are the eaters that could put an end to such a family? Nine million eggs! exclaimed Jules. What a family! Just to count those eggs one by one would take nearly a year of eight or ten working hours a day. Whoever counted them must have had lots of patience, observed Claire. They are not counted, they are weighed which is soon done and from the weight it is easy to estimate the number when it is known how many eggs it takes to make a gram ha how easy it is when you know how cried claire what would have taken a year of tiresome work becomes the affair of a minute or two one of the favorite rendezvous of the schools of cod is the neighborhood of newfoundland a large island of the seas that wash the eastern coast of north america near this island is a vast extent of shallow water called the newfoundland banks thither in summer attracted by abundant food come myriads of cod from the depths of the northern seas thither also come fishermen of all nationalities this is not the small fishing that you sometimes see on the banks of a river the fishermen do not wait hour after hour under the shade of a willow for an ill-favoured little carp to come and nibble at the hook baited with a worm and count themselves lucky if they go home with half a dozen diminutive fish strung on a twig or lying in the bottom of a basket. Fishing in Newfoundland is a different matter. Cod are caught by the shipload. France alone sends out every year four or five hundred vessels, with crews aggregating fifteen thousand men, to the various fisheries conducted on a large scale, and among these fisheries that of the cod is chief and employs the most men. At the same time think of the Dutch, Danes, Swedes, English, Americans, and many others all bound for the same fishing grounds, their fleets manned by an army of fishermen, and you will gain some idea of the activity prevailing off the coast of Newfoundland. At daybreak the boats leave the ship and take their places, one here, another there, at the most promising spots. From both sides of each boat hang lines, stout cords of hemp carrying at the end an iron fish-hook baited with a small fish, or the shred from the entrails of cod taken the day before. The voracious codfish rush up at the sight of these dainties and greedily swallow at a gulp both hook and bait. The fisherman pulls in his line and the victim follows, its gullet pierced by the fish-hook. Scarcely is the line baited again and thrown back into the water when another cod is caught. On both sides of the boat every man watches his lines and keeps on renewing the bait, throwing the line into the sea and pulling it out again with a cod on the end. By evening the boat is filled to the gunwales with fine large fish, still wriggling, certainly that is a kind of fishing said claire that leaves no time for napping with a line dangling idly at the end of one's rod and when you do get a bite it's no miserable little gudgeon either that has swallowed your hook no it is no miserable little gudgeon the average length of a cod is one metre and its average weight between seven and eight kilograms occasionally cod are taken that weigh as much as twenty or thirty kilograms A fish of that size, caught in one of our rivers, would be the talk of the country around. You say, Jules interposed, that the hooks are baited sometimes with small fish, sometimes even with pieces of the entrails from the cod taken the day before. If they pounce like that on the remains of their own kind, codfish must be very greedy indeed. Other animals don't devour those of their own species. Their veracity is unequaled. With these fish, the large gobble up the small, the strong devour the weak, without the least scruple, and under no compulsion of extreme hunger, though they must often be hungry enough, as they are endowed with digestive powers that are truly astonishing. Moreover, if some indigestible prey, too bulky for comfort and swallowed too greedily, incommodes them, the cod have a quick way of getting rid of it. They reject the excess of food by vomiting. "'Oh, the horrid creatures!' cried Marie, their white flesh in its pretty layers doesn't correspond at all with their way of living i do not deny it but it is that peculiar way of living that has given us their savoury white flesh as a highly esteemed article of food and then this greediness that excites your disgust is not without its importance in the scheme of things think of a cod's family of the nine million eggs laid by a single fish if all those eggs hatched and the young were allowed to reach maturity In a few generations the millions would become billions, and these latter in turn would multiply and become other billions, so that at length before long there would be no room in all the seas taken together for the codfish alone. Therefore these fishes must eat one another now and then, if only to offset this alarming multiplication. Man, birds of prey, large and voracious fish, all lend a hand in this work of extermination. And thus with immense slaughter, the prolific cod is held down to reasonable limits within its ocean home instead of becoming a pretentious multitude. Filled to overflowing, the boats return in the evening to their respective ships, where the preparation of the fish takes place. With a large knife one fisherman cuts off the heads, another slits the decapitated cods along the line of the stomach, a third takes out the entrails, being very careful to set aside the liver, a fourth flattens the fish thus treated, and a fifth rubs them well with salt and piles them up. "'What do they do with the livers that were set aside?' asked Claire. "'They fill a cask with the livers and leave it exposed to air. Soon decomposition sets in, the whole mass putrefies, and there rises to the top a greasy liquid that is known as cod-liver oil. This oil is carefully collected, for it is held in high repute as a medicine.' "'I have heard of it,' said Marie. "'They say it is detestable to take on account of its horrid smell of decayed fish. The way it is obtained accounts for its nastiness.' Decayed fish livers couldn't possibly furnish anything pleasing to taste or smell. But after all, a person conquers his repugnance if the detestable remedy is really a cure. End of Part 18